Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com here. You are tuned into the Film, Literature, and the New World Order podcast for the month of March 2015. And as promised, this month we're going to be looking at, well, a very interesting piece of cinema, I suppose you could say, in sneer quotes. And that is Pink Cadillac, the 1989 flick starring none other than Dirty Harry himself, Clint Eastwood. And although back in the 1980s, perhaps people had a different image of Clint Eastwood, these days, Clint is probably best known for such things as debating an empty chair at the 2012 Republican National Convention or giving a flowery Hollywood makeover to the corpse of J. Edgar Hoover back in the J. Edgar biopic, or venerating the American psycho, I mean, American sniper, Chris Kyle, in the latest piece of propaganda to come from the American cinematic military-industrial complex. But now we're going to hearken back to that simpler time of the 1980s when he was, uh, when Eastwood was still trading on his uh, admittedly aging tough guy persona. So why exactly are we gathered here today to talk about Pink Cadillac? Is it to ponder the profound exploration of the human condition contained in this film, or to celebrate the movie's witty dialogue, or its intricate storyline, or to appreciate its groundbreaking direction or cinematography? Clint Eastwood is a fugitive hunter, and he's full of surprises and disguises in Pink Cadillac. Nice ride, cowboy. Pick you up at six o'clock in a long black limousine, Batesy baby. Oh, he's good. There's no question about that. He's so good, he's got to die. The birthright gang has a score to settle, and they'll stop at nothing. But Bernadette Peters is Clint's biggest trouble, and he's hot on her tail. Once he finds her, he's in for the ride of his life. Get a warrant for that woman. Obviously a hardened criminal. I can tell by the cupid bow lips. This is so wrong. Oh, this is uh, grade A U.S. government green. Give me a break. Too much raw dude for you, huh, babe? Well, I can dig it. If my life were a movie, there'd be a sign on it saying, Caution, some scenes too intense for younger viewers. Yeah! <laughs> yeah! It's a contact sport! Clint Eastwood, Bernadette Peters, a wild pair on a fast ride. The rum. Didn't anyone ever tell you you shouldn't mess with a man's vehicles? Pink Cadillac. No, clearly we are not going to dissect this film as a work of art, because it is not. It is nonsense and claptrap and poorly scripted, directed, acted, and and photographed uh, nonsense and claptrap at that. So, what is it about this film that we are going to talk about? America! For Americans! Well, did you get the female? Oh, <laughs> what about the money? Oh, 
White Cross, Roy, you two have put me on a very low budget level. Now, I tried to have some pamphlets made up cheaply. White Cross, why don't you come up here and take a look at this? Niggers, blah, 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 spicks, gooks taking our jobs, blah, 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 conspiracy of the Jews. It's not very good, Alex. Why don't you tell everyone why? Well, first off, the printing stinks. I mean, niggers is all blurred, and down here you got Jews running clear off into the margin. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's funny, White Cross? Well, I mean, it's... imagine trying to recruit new members with amateurish crap like this. There's no way, Alex. It's just you are going to Silhouette City, man. Man, if you could just sit and talk to Alex for ten minutes, you'd understand why you have to live in this crummy little house. How you got cheated out of your birthright and what you can do to get back with yours. Hey, this house is just fine with me. And I know what you stand for. My old man fought against it in World War II. Maybe I ought to just pop you right now. Now, if these people are going to stand here pointing these guns like this, I'm going to have to ask you, are you an organ donor, Alex? Nobody shoots! All right, here's the program. We all walk back through Cadillac. We all leave, we all live. I let Alex go a couple miles down the road. How's that sound to you? Hold your fire. I'm going down the hill with these people. I thought you'd understand. They'll never let you out of here alive. They're not that stupid. I disagree. You ought to kill me in cold blood. In the car. You won't be safe until I'm dead. Why don't you pull that trigger? I would. Ah, yes, that's it. Clearly today we are going to be talking about the ways that this movie, almost as an afterthought, uses as its arch-enemies, arch-villains, these dastardly right-wing neo-Nazi militia movement members living in the woods, counterfeiting money, and uh, doing drug deals and kidnapping babies for fun and profit. And yes, this is the way that this film connects to a very interesting and largely unexplored or at least underexplored vein of American history that connects the rise of a militia movement in the United States in the late 80s and early 90s to such events as Ruby Ridge, Waco, and of course, OKC. During his stay at Fort Riley, Kansas, McVeigh had been selected to try out for the Special Forces, the exclusive Green Berets, his dream assignment in the military. 
and had trained extensively for it, doing hundreds of push-ups and hundreds of sit-ups every day, carrying 100 pounds of gear 13, 15 miles a day to get himself in the physical condition for the course. The Gulf War changed that for him. When the war ended, his unit was part of the security force assigned to guard General Norman Schwarzkopf in Saudi Arabia. Suddenly, he was told to return to the United States. His long-desired wish to try out for the special forces, his revered Green Berets, had finally become a reality. He was getting everything ready. He was happy. He was excited. He was moving, you know, because he was going to the special forces. McVeigh got on a troop transport, went home on a brief leave for about a week. After arriving in Fort Riley, Kansas, McVeigh's first stop was his favorite restaurant, the Rock House Tavern. He still was, had his clothes he wore from Saudi, you know, he still had, in fact, he still had sand on him. And um, he told me, he said, I just got off the plane, and he said, all I could, could think about was your food, your breakfast and your burgers. And he said, um, he said, it helped me make it through that over there. One week later, Sergeant Timothy McVeigh was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, undergoing the strenuous Special Forces tryout. But he was not the soldier he had been before the war in the Gulf. After living in the desert for four months, he was physically drained, uh, particularly the desert conditions. His equipment was wore out. One of the tests was for him to carry a 45-pound sack with him on a long journey. He was wearing new boots, his ankles were aching, his body and mind were physically out of shape. His feet were blistered, his ankle was sprained. At that point, McVeigh knew he could not pass the physically grueling Special Forces tests. It was the most devastating thing that had ever happened to him. And he sent a written notice to the camp supervisor, a voluntary statement of withdrawal. It reads, I am not physically ready. It was his first failure in the military, and his buddies saw a, really an altered McVeigh when he returned from that experience. Uh, he was somebody who had succeeded in everything in the military before. Now he had failed, uh, and he seemed somewhat embittered and soured. After washing out of the Green Berets, McVeigh returned to his old army base in Fort Riley, Kansas. He was restless and moved off base, but could not settle in any one place for long. He read and reread the Turner Diaries, a book he discovered in survivalist magazines. The Turner Diaries is this novel about race war in America where this uh, group of white supremacists basically take over the country, take blacks and Jews and people that are married and mix you know, marriages, hang them up from the lamppost. I mean, just this really apocalyptic novel. Timothy McVeigh loved it. He became more and more angry with the government and thought that this fictional book could somehow become a reality, uh, some type of uh, Orwellian uh, 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 prediction and he read this book more and more often. McVeigh carefully read the newspapers and became angry over what he considered unwarranted arrests, many gun and drug related that were made by the federal government. He was someone who increasingly read and spent time with conspiracy oriented right-wing type books. McVeigh still collected guns and he would sit in his room and clean them in his spare time. He was becoming more of a loner every day. Then, to the surprise of everyone, on December 31st, 1991, he took an early discharge from the Army and went home. Many were puzzled by his decision to abandon what had appeared to be a promising career.
by all accounts, he went back home as a 23-year-old war hero and led a fairly normal and ordinary life. Uh, got a full-time job, uh, dated a couple girls up there, and uh, worked as a supervisor at the security company. No, not quite all accounts, Mr. Biography Talking Head, but what else would we expect from the A&E biography version of the Timothy McVeigh story other than 43 minutes of unadulterated claptrap nonsense, lies, exaggerations, hyperbole, and perhaps most importantly, omitted information, like the omitted information that it was not inexplicable that that uh, this Timothy McVeigh, who had set his sights on and trained for years to become part of the special forces and had devoted himself to that goal, suddenly dropped out or uh, asked for his discharge and and then became some aimless drifter around the right-wing patriot militia movement in the 1990s, creating a name for himself. Not only was it not inexplicable, but it was explained by none other than Timothy McVeigh himself in a letter to his sister Jennifer dated October 20th, 1993, published in nothing other than the New York Times itself, which published an excerpt from this letter on July 1st, 1998, in which McVeigh writes, quote, The ten of us were told that out of the select group of 400, we had scored highest on certain tests. We had been selected because of our intelligence, physical makeup, and physical abilities. We were to feel special, part of a hand-picked group. We were all asked to volunteer, talk about peer pressure, to do some work for the government on the domestic as well as international front. What I learned next, both from the briefings and from the questions and private talks, included 1. We would be helping the CIA fly drugs into the U.S. to fund many covert operations. 2. Military consultants were to work hand-in-hand with civilian police agencies to quiet anyone who was deemed a security risk. We would be government-paid assassins. And 3. Many other details. To verify these last two, see the enclosed article or watch, again, the movie Lethal Weapon. End quote. Well, maybe that's another edition of the film literature and New World Order series, but there you have it in Timothy McVeigh's own words that he was, in fact, recruited into special forces at Fort Bragg as a government-paid assassin who would be helping to fly drugs into the U.S. for the CIA, amongst other things. So, yes, there is a reason why he suddenly and inexplicably, quote-unquote, asked for this discharge and received it, and then became this right-wing patriot militia member, it's because he was part of an operation to penetrate and to infiltrate and to disrupt that network, or quote-unquote, disrupt that network, even though he ended up being the one supposedly driving the supposed bomb that supposedly did the damage at the federal building in Oklahoma City. Well, As people who have listened to the Corbett Report in the past will know, the entire OKC story is a fabric and tissue of lies top to bottom, and we've deconstructed that many times. We will continue to deconstruct it next month in the lead-up to the 20th anniversary of the OKC bombing. But suffice it to say, yes, there are many, many other pieces of evidence that corroborate the story Timothy McVeigh himself wrote in this letter, including, of course, the video that has surfaced of him at a armed forces base after the point of his supposed discharge, uh, an armed forces base no less known for its uh, its use of training for demolitions. So, yes, again, there are so many different pieces of this puzzle, but perhaps one of the most important of relevance to our topic today, the the per- portrayal of this right-wing militia movement in 
movies and popular culture like Pink Cadillac is the neglected piece of information that, as the old joke has it, if you go to a clan's meeting and there are four, uh, four people there, three of the four members of the clan are going to be government informants. Well, in the exact same way, if you were in the right-wing militia movement in the early 1990s, chances are three out of the four people you, you knew and uh, were collaborating with were going to be government informants. That is how it rolls. And again, that's not conspiracy theory. That is 100% openly admitted, declassified, documented admission from the Department of Justice. We now know the actual name of the, the secret undercover program that the government was running to infiltrate these militia groups. It was called PATCON for Patriot Conspiracy. It was officially launched in July of 1991, according to the declassified documents that we have, or at least the unredacted parts of the declassified documents that we have on PATCON. And it was, uh, of course, a vast undercover operation that involved having government informants all over that right-wing militia network, who we are asked to believe, according to the official government story, didn't know anything about about McVeigh or, you know, the, the plot beforehand or anything of that sort. But as has been documented time and time again by tireless researchers in the OKC Truth community, was 100% known about and talked about and warned about by various government informants time and time again in the lead up to the OKC bombing. And wouldn't you know it, somehow or other, the, it went ahead and the bombing happened. Now, again, there's so much to talk about with OKC specifically, but let's talk a little bit about PatCon, how these documents came to light, what we know about this, and how it relates into the OKC story, and in fact, the story of the uh, the, the various crimes that were being committed in the early 1990s by these militia groups as part of the funding for what they were doing. And just to get something of a handle and a perspective on this, let's turn to a conversation with Jesse Trenadu, con conducted by Scott Horden back several years ago. Now, Jesse has been on The Corporate Report several times, but let's spread the love around to Scott Horden, who's done a lot of great work on OKC that I would hope people will be familiar with, and if not, please do check into it. But Scott Horden, uh, several years ago, was interviewing Jesse Trenadu about PatCon and the greater conspiracy that surrounds and and weaves its way into the OKC story. And uh, again, for people who don't know about Jesse Trenadu, please do look in the archives of Corporate Report for my various interviews with him about his the story of his brother, Kenneth, how he was killed in federal custody and what that has to do with the OKC bombing. But right now, let's listen to Jesse Trenadu talking about the PatCon admitted government conspiracy. As I pursued this... Uh -huh. Over the last 16 years, and in lots of lawsuits and fights with the FBI, I stumbled across an operation that the FBI called PATCON, P-A-T-C-O-N. PATCON was an acronym for Patriot Conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And the FBI began to distance itself from PATCON when I was probing, and they said it was just a simple operation where they were going to infiltrate some militia folks in Alabama who had stolen some night vision goggles from a military base and were selling them. But it was clear to me that PatCon was bigger than that, much, much bigger. And there were PatCon operations going on all over the country. And they, were, they referred to them as PatCon Group 1, PatCon Group 2, PatCon Group 3. Uh, PatCon, meaning that's the FBI's name for their wide-scale, you say, investigation and infiltration of the radical right in the early, mid-1990s. And it went, apparently it went throughout the 90s because um, 
here last summer, I received a phone call from a fellow who said, uh, I've been seeing what's been posted on the Internet from your FOIA lawsuits with the FBI. And I, he said, you have all the pieces, but you just haven't put them together. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you just don't see the picture. And so he came to see me, and I, I directed him to Newsweek magazine and to um, some other reporters. He had been one of the top undercover operatives for the FBI and PATCON for almost 10 years. He had infiltrated some 23 groups. He started out believing it was the right thing. He wasn't, you know, so many of these informants are people who are caught in the act of committing a crime and are forced to go undercover for the FBI. He did it voluntarily because he thought these hate groups, what described him as hate groups, were dangerous. In hindsight, he said he looked back on it and he sees now that the, the agenda, the agenda was to infiltrate and incite uh, the militia movement, the right-wing Christian movement, the violence, so that the Department of Justice could crush him. He said that Ruby Ridge was a PATCON operation. He said that Waco was a PATCON operation. He believed that Oklahoma City was, but he wasn't involved in it. But he did say that other members of the PATCON group were involved in Oklahoma City. And that is why the efforts to cover up my brother's murder took place. That is why Eric Holder was involved. And that is why Eric Holder and the Obama Justice Department are as nervous as a cat in a round room today. Yeah. Because if PatCon ever comes out, the truth about the story, uh, it'll bring down lots of people. And in fact, one of it was reported that a former FBI agent made the comment to one of the reporters that uh, you better stay away from PatCon; that'll get you killed. Once again, that is Jesse Trinidu talking to Scott Horton about the PatCon documents and what they reveal. And again, it's difficult to really even encapsulate all of this information, but it is important to understand that it is now documented top to bottom that the right-wing militia networks that McVeigh was running in in the time in the lead-up to the OKC bombing were 100% top to bottom infested with government informants, including perhaps most notably at Elohim City. What is Elohim City? Well, for those who don't know, let's turn to a very valuable investigation from J.D. Cash, the late great OKC investigator who is dearly departed and very much missed, who did excellent groundbreaking work on OKC for years and years, including this 2005 McCurden Daily Gazette article, FBI Surrenders Documents That Judge Ordered. Quote, under pressure from a federal judge to produce at least 87 pages of unredacted internal FBI documents related to the 1995 bombing of the 1995 Oklahoma City Federal Building, the Oklahoma City FBI office has filed under seal documents with a Salt Lake City Federal Court that could unlock some of the mysteries surrounding the terrorist attack that left 168 dead. Along with the documents under seal, the agency cited a number of reasons the court should continue to protect persons whose names were originally blacked out of some of the crucial documents and certain facts the FBI alone possesses about activities at a paramilitary terrorist training camp called Elohim City. Filed in federal court in Salt Lake City, Utah, attorneys for the U.S. DOJ argued that the FBI Oklahoma City office should not have to make public details that some people 
could prove, uh, that some believe could prove the FBI had prior knowledge of the plot to bomb the Oklahoma City Federal Building, but somehow failed to stop it. This litigation is part of a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit filed by Salt Lake City attorney Jesse Trendadu. At the center of the controversy is an unclassified copy of a memorandum marked from the director of the FBI that contains several references to an FBI undercover operation at Elohim City before the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building. The electronic message was sent to the OK Bomb Investigation Task Force and a select group of FBI offices around the nation some eight months after the 1995 Federal Building bombing. The potentially explosive contents of the teletype, among other things, exposed for the first time an informant operation being conducted by nationally known civil rights lawyer Morris Dees through his organization, the Southern Poverty Law Center. In some detail, the FBI acknowledged the SPLC was engaged in an undercover role where it monitored subjects for the FBI believed to be linked to the executed bomber Timothy McVeigh, the white supremacist compound at Elohim City, and the mysterious German national Andreas Karl Strassmeier, end quote. For those of you who do not know who Andreas Strassmeier is, that's a whole other can of worms that leads even further into the various intelligence manipulations that were going on in the 1990s surrounding the OKC bombing for more specifically on uh, McVeigh and Strassmeier. You might want to look into an intelwire.com article. Informant McVeigh called Strassmeier weeks before OKC. And for even more, you can look at such things as the investigation by uh, uh, on constitution.org, Miller's Rent-A-Nazi, talking about Strassmeier in a great degree of detail, where it notes that a German national, the 38-year-old Strassmeier, is the son of Gunther Strassmeier, former parliamentary secretary of state to German Chancellor Helmut Kohl. Strassmeier's uncle is in the German parliament, and his brother Alexander sits on the Berlin City Council. Like Langen, Strassmeier's father also reportedly had connections to the CIA. Andreas served as a lieutenant in the German Panzer Grenadiers, the equivalent of our special forces, had formal military intelligence training, and did a stint as a liaison officer with the Welsh Guards. He told the London Sunday Telegraph that part of his work was to, to detect infiltration by Warsaw Pact agents and then feed them disinformation. If we caught a guy, we'd offer him am amnesty. We'd turn him and we'd use him to feed false information back to the Warsaw Pact. While Strassmeier would not admit it, it is reported that he is an agent for the German National Anti-Terrorist Police, the GSG-9. Andy, the German, as he became known, arrived in the U.S. in May of 1991 without being documented by the INS, the Immigration and Nationalization Service, and lived on a credit card provided by sources unknown. He soon became Elohim City's Director of Security. According to Strassmeier, his path crossed McVeigh's at a Tulsa gun show in April of 1993. Strassmeier stopped by McVeigh's table and brought a few, bought a few military souvenirs and discussed events at Waco. He then gave McVeigh his card bearing the inscription Elohim City. In an interview in Soldier of Fortune, Strassmeier professed never to have heard of McVeigh, though he later recanted, recanted his story for the Telegraph. I met the guy once at a gun show, he said. We spoke for five minutes, that's all. End quote. Well, again, of course, that story 
completely contradicted, even by government informants and uh, and records that show that McVeigh was calling Mayor Strassmeyer at Elohim City weeks uh, prior to the bombing. And uh, and uh, again, that just opens a whole other can of worms against this Strassmeyer, who the, this well-connected, politically connected, intelligence-trained, former special forces operative who suddenly moves to the United States, uh, being issued three visas on the same day by the same American consulate in uh, in Germany, and uh, arrives in America and suddenly sets up as head of security of this white militia, white neo-Nazi militia compound in Elohim City. Again, the intelligence connections here are just absolutely mind-boggling, just ludicrous that this entire story, all of these details are never, ever even broached in the mainstream stories of OKC. But of course, they wouldn't be, would they? And of course, these types of connections, these very real and documentable historical connections between the various government operations, the admitted, on-the-record, documented government operations to infiltrate and to even lead many of these uh, militia movements and, and groups, is somehow not what was presented in mainstream popular culture at the time through movies like Pink Cadillac, where, of course, we get to see these ridiculous, bumbling neo-Nazi groups uh, basically just being crazy woodsmen, or some equivalent thereof, doing their terror operations. Of course, completely out of the sight and uh, and and uh, out of the, the, the reach of the long arm of the law, somehow or other. Well, again, that doesn't reflect reality at all, and that skewed version of reality allowed the mainstream media to paint, as soon as the the possible alternative explanation for OKC as some sort of Muslim uh, uh, terrorism was discarded, that was one of the possible tricks up the sleeve that they had ready, and they did have various connections and pieces of evidence that they could have pulled out of their hat uh, to, in order to document that. And in fact, some people still do try to suggest there was some sort of Iraqi connection to OKC or Ramzi Youssef was involved in the bombing. But uh, once they discarded that narrative and went with the, the right-wing militia movement narrative, well, suddenly then we get mainstream interviews of people like Mark Kornke in the wake of the OKC bombing talking about the possibility that this was a government-staged operation committed by the New World Order. So, what about the Oklahoma City bombing? Did you have anything to do with that at all? In no way, shape, or form did we have anything to do with the bombing, uh, except that we do have concern now that the evidence is preserved and that the parties that have been arrested remain alive. Excuse me, did you suggest yesterday that the U.S. government might have bombed that building itself? Well, uh, from the evidence that we've seen, and I might remind you, yes, we do have a, we, by the way, as I might mention to the audience, we do have a radio program of our own, Monday through Friday, one hour a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, and as has been the case in the past, we have made a point of... Uh, collecting information on actions of this type in your own media coverage it was admitted that a series of devices my question was uh, mr cornky did you suggest that the u.s government might have bombed that building in oklahoma city and i'll explain i'm qualifying that myself you'll notice i never have a chance to make short statements i think there is a possibility and it's uh, unfortunately with more evidence is becoming more uh, more questionable as time goes by all right we've about reached the end of our time on the intelligence report you sign off by saying Death, Unless Republic, death, death to the new world order. We shall prevail. Yeah, death to the new world order. We shall prevail. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I think, and I, I was, I was going to question this. So, the Oklahoma had a very interesting uh, and exciting experience here last year in their Oklahoma House of Representatives anti-New World Order resolution, enrolled House Resolution Number 1047. <coughs> Excuse me. And as we have said. It is our objective to make sure that the uh, New World Order, of course, uh, does not take the country. We are constitutionalists. We believe in a limited republic. Death to the New World Order. What do you mean by oh, death? Absolutely. That's the figure of speech. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't really mean death. Well, uh, as far as the New World Order is concerned, uh, well, we don't plan on surrendering the Constitution the Bill of, and the Bill of Rights, so absolutely to the New World Order. With regard to its attempt to manipulate or create a one-world government, mm, yes, death to the New World Order. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Cornkey, for coming in tonight. Thank you, Sam. You know, for some reason, you just don't see interviews like that on TV every day these days, do you? But there it was, in the wake of the OKC bombing, that storyline was at least broached because it did tie into this grander narrative that the FBI and others had been admittedly, documentably involved in for years, cultivating these militia groups and infiltrating them and steering them in various directions as part of an attempt to undermine what they were doing. Ha ha ha. Of course, that ultimately ended up with the death of 168 people in Oklahoma City. So I think we can understand that the FBI, at the very least, are to blame for their ridiculous incompetence. But unfortunately, it's not incompetence when you actually add all the pieces of the puzzle together and realize it wasn't even the rider truck outside of the building that caused the damage to the building. But again, as I say, we have talked about that in the past. We will talk about that more in the run-up to the 20th anniversary of OKC next month. But the point of today is to examine the narrative that was being painted not just in the news cycle around the time of OKC, in the lead-up to OKC, in the time of Waco and Ruby Ridge and those other types of right-wing militia movement touchstone issues, but in the popular culture. And it traces back as far as 1989 to something like Pink Cadillac with that really bizarre subplot storyline about these militia men living in the woods and uh, and the, the the crimes that they were committing. Uh, which actually predates, according to the FBI's own documents, uh, anyway, the actual FBI PATCON conspiracy, and that leads through the 1990s to such things as uh, Donahue featuring some of these crazy New World Order militiamen on his show in 1994. The United States of America, they believe that the United States government is prepared to usurp the Constitution and break down doors and confiscate guns. Am I lying to these people, Bob Fletcher and Jim Trockman? John Trockman. John, sorry, it says John here. You believe this? No, not quite like that. Not the U.S. government. Which government? The one world government? Yes, sir. You, you, the United Nations? Yes, sir. And you're in the woods now, and you're not, neither no. of you, you're not in the woods? No, no, no. Yeah, you're from Montana, the city of Noxon? Yes, sir, the little town of Noxon. 350 people? Maximum. Aha, uh -huh. and you living in the woods? No. no. No, you're not. Is anybody in Montana? Just their plain homes. You're sitting next to Ray Southwell, who does, from Michigan. You're li you, you, you gather in the woods, don't you? In Michigan? When we train? Yeah. That's correct. But you're not living there. I don't quite understand when you say living there. I live in northern Michigan, and uh, I have 20 acres that I live on, and there's a house there. Right. You're with Ken Adams and Doug Hall here, as well as uh, the ever-popular, highly-regarded Jim Johnson. 
You you're from Ohio, are you? That's correct, Columbus to be exact. Yeah. You're in a militia, are you? The Ohio Unorganized Militia, duly elected communications officer. Yeah. What's, what do you, uh, incidentally, I thought this was a all-white Aryan nation, uh, don't tread on me uh, kind of group. Yeah, well, the Saving the Country doesn't have an affirmative action program. All are invited. And uh, you're here, among other things, to say that you share their concern about uh, the pending crisis that's coming to this country? Oh, absolutely. Uh, being a minority in our community, we've seen certain actions that these conspiratorial theorists have talked about actually happen in our communities. Yeah. Tell us what they are. I'm having a little trouble getting it from the civilians here. <laughs> well, the, uh, you look the, like you're from IBM compared to the rest of the group. Uh, yes, so. yeah. We can I spot you we, from we, the air, Bob. You better get yourself true. your fatigues here. I'm you, going to get spotted from the air. Yes, you are. <laughs> you're serious about this. Please, I want this audience to know. Oh, show them the film. This is from Michigan. Let me just, while, while we're showing that, you can make your uh, the case. The basic here. problem is rather simple, and Americans have become concerned that here in the United States we're losing our constitutional rights. We are slowly being moved into what amounts to being a one world, and that's George Bush and Gorbachev's words, a one world, new world order. And what that amounts to uh, basically is socialism, one world socialism, and if you don't like it you're going to be moved off someplace where they can control you. And the, the problem is, uh, in terms of the militia across the United States, this is exactly what we're addressing. It has nothing to do with racism, as I guess uh, our, our compadre from Ohio would uh, testify. It has nothing to do with a handful of crazy people running through the woods and practicing to shoot unknown, mysterious people. We already are witnessing, as we talk today, Puerto Rico, San Juan, Puerto Rico is under martial law, folks that everybody said would never happen. All the way through to even television comedy sitcoms like Frasier with a bizarre plot that they un unleashed in season 10 in 2003 where Niles, ha ha ha, just bumbles into and gets mixed up in that crazy New World Order militia movement without him realizing who he was really dealing with. Oh, uh, Red, hold on a second. Uh, just what kind of place do you guys have in Idaho? Run-of-the-mill compound in the wilderness. Free country where we live by the true constitution. <laughs> They're those militia people. You fix this now. This is fun, huh? Uh, son... I... What your father means is you shouldn't be friends with these people. Yeah, these are not your kind of guys. Why not? Well, let's just go and we'll talk about it in the car. Oh, I can't believe you two. You're always telling me my friends are too artsy and too snooty. Now I finally have friends who are regular guys. You don't like them either? Well, I'm having a good time, and I'm enjoying being a regular guy myself. But Niles, we think they want to overthrow the government. <laughs> That's what you say about public television. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me. Hey, guys, what you doing? We're chipping in for this gas-powered generator. We're going to need it when it comes time for the New World Order. Well, that sounds great. Excuse me just a second. Okay, they're militia. Go, 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 go. So, again, there was a thread of obvious 
predictive programming that was going on before the event and retroactive programming that was was going on for years after it to maintain that image of these crazy right-wing militia groups that just sprang out of nowhere and, of course, were completely out of the grasp of the FBI and others, which feeds into the mainstream narrative of those crazy New World Order conspiracy theorists who are all obviously skinhead neo-Nazi right-wing rabid racists who live in the woods and are just crazy. Of course, there's always that type of programming to try to further dismiss anyone from actually looking at any of these issues. And that's not to say that there aren't rabid, racist, right-wing neo-Nazis who have been and are and genuine, genuinely in the militia movement, but it is to say that Again, this is some, a phenomenon that cannot be understood apart from the infestation of these groups by FBI and other undercover operatives throughout the time of the rise of these groups in the 1990s. So, where does this leave us in terms of something like a pink Cadillac? And I think there are really a couple of different ways of looking at this. Of course, there is the obvious one that there must be some sort of direct connection that perhaps the FBI, the DOJ, so there was some sort of connection directly between those uh, those types of agencies and the screenwriter or director or someone involved with the production of this film to get this entire subplot of these, these crazy militia people living in the woods inserted into the movie, which we could understand, we could understand how that works, and it would be a simple story to tell. Um, It might be more difficult to document, but it would be a simple story to understand that the government as part of the PATCON, the Patriot Conspiracy, to basically infiltrate and build up these groups would also want to build them up in the minds of the public. And we know that there are various government agencies that are hand in uh, hand in glove with various directors and parts of the military industrial film complex. So that wouldn't be so much of a stretch. Now, specifically looking at that with regards to Pink Cadillac, uh, there's not much that I can dig up specifically on that type of connection. There's no, as far as I know, admitted uh, participation of the FBI or anyone else in the creation of this movie. And we could look at such linkages, uh, retroactive linkages uh, in retrospect, but uh, linkages nonetheless. For example, Clint Eastwood, uh, as part of his J. Edgar movie, um, arranged with the then CIA chief, Leon Panetta, who he is interestingly friends with, <laughs> to uh, to arrange a private dinner with FBI director Robert Mueller, um, Mueller who uh, he dined with as part of that J. Edgar um, biopic uh, research that he was doing. And and that story has been documented by The Hollywood Reporter and other mainstream outlets. So there's those types of linkages, which are certainly interesting, but nothing, again, directly that works uh, with Pink Cadillac, which was directed by Buddy Van Horn, a.k.a. Clint Eastwood's body double, and, uh, and written by John Escrow, who... Uh, you can read his works in various, uh, sorry, John Esco, Escow. He he writes uh, for a lot of different publications. He also wrote uh, the Pink Cadillac script, but uh, no really documentable linkages that I could find in regards to that. Of course, if anyone in the audience can find any sort of direct linkage between the FBI or what have you in this film, that would be extremely interesting. But I think this might be an example of a different type of phenomenon. Of course, there is always the possibility that there is some under-the-table connection that we don't know about and can't know about directly, like 
is revealed from time to time by people like uh, the, the the lone gunman actor who came out and admitted, oh yeah, well, Chris Carter, you know, he talks to people at parties and the CIA may have handed him the idea for flying a plane into the World Trade Center as the uh, the plot of the lone gunman uh, uh, pilot episode that launched a few months before 9-11. Uh, those types of revelations come out from time to time, but they can only come out from insiders with an inside story to tell, and there's no way to directly access that type of information, just us out, out here in the open source investigation. But there is another phenomenon entirely that this may be representative of, which is how popular culture not only is used, obviously, as a direct conduit for propagating and, uh, and predictively programming people with this type of information, but also as a reflection of those types of phenomenon that are being steered and puppeteered and engineered from behind the scenes by now documentable conspiracies like the FBI's PatCon. So we know that the FBI, at least in the early 1990s, not in the late 1980s, although we can imagine that this probably does extend through other uh, uh, operations far uh, further back in time. But at, at any rate, we do know that in the 1990s, the FBI was intimately involved in these groups, building them up. And as a result of that, we see them being reflected more in the popular culture culture and in Donahue and in Fraser and in places like that, not because those are necessarily directly linked to the FBI or there's someone, some intelligence agent handing them uh, scripts from behind the scenes, but because they are reflecting a reality that is being created and fostered by the intelligence agencies, because they are making a certain reality on the ground by fostering, by protecting, by being intimately involved with and funding these groups and, and, and stopping them from being busted as uh, the Elohim City uh, was slated to be busted in February of 1995, but for some reason or another wasn't. Again, there are so many different pieces to this puzzle, but it's a fascinating thing to reflect on. Sometimes I think these movies and books that we're examining are not simply being secretly ghost-ridden by the FBI or the CIA. They are simply a reflection of a reality that is being created by these intelligence agencies. And by, of course, occulting or hiding the information about the intelligence agencies' involvement in these various schemes, well, there you go. You've just hidden that important, crucial piece of information that could give us a completely different perspective on things like the OKC bombing. So again, I'm not necessarily, I'm, well, I'm certainly not asserting that this, uh, this movie that we're examining today was a direct creation of the intelligence agencies for the specific purpose of programming the public about these militia groups, but it certainly had that effect, didn't it? And I can attest to that personally because I myself, as a, as a young boy growing up in rural Alberta, Canada, I remember vividly as a youngster around the time of OKC, I can't remember if it was before or after the event, but certainly around that time, myself and my brothers, it was a running joke amongst us that you're one of those crazy Michigan militia members. How on earth did we even know about that phenomenon? Why on earth did we talk about it? Why did we you, you know, pick up on that from the popular culture and, and taunt each other with it? Oh, you're, you're crazy. Why don't you go live in the woods like a Michigan militia man? <laughs> How did we know that? It was because it was being programmed into us. And now I sit here as a 35-year-old man reflecting back on that from my youth and thinking just how incredibly effective this can be for creating various understandings amongst the public, or more specifically, misunderstandings. So, again, this is just a reflection of the phenomenon that we're documenting from multiple different angles these days on the Film Literature New World Order series of not just how the uh, the these types of 
films and, and books are being created to program us, but how they are also a reflection of that program and a, and a reinforcement of programming that is taking place in secret operations that we do not know about until years or decades later. Now, as I say, <laughs> I don't really want to talk about this movie or anything to do with it because it is a steaming pile of turd, but it is an interesting window on a very interesting piece of history that I hope we have at least begin, begun to broach in this episode. And as I say, the show notes are going to be jam-packed with various pieces of this puzzle that will, I hope, start to become even clearer in the coming weeks as we do continue to explore the OKC story in preparation for the onslaught of propagandistic coverage of the 20th anniversary of that event. Now... Having said all of that, I would always I would like to once again, as always, thank everyone for their comments and uh, information that they brought to the discussion of last month's FLNWO episode, where of course myself and uh, and uh, cheered and uh, Andringa of the University of Groningen were talking about Narcissus and Goldmund. So let's just go through a few of the comments that we received on that last conversation. Of course, we had Fosca, who wrote a lengthy message talking about how um, one thing I want to comment uh, is cheered and you putting the books, uh, Narcissus, in context to the central powers and control of the world, including the industrial military complex. While both Narcissus and Goldman may be seen as extremes of their kind, the thinker and the doer, they still cope with their focus slash strengths in a human way of not taking advantage over anybody else. They are not exploiting anybody else, at least not much or not that the authors want the reader to believe. And he goes on to talk more about that uh, thinker-doer dichotomy and how everybody will have strengths and weaknesses. The important thing is to allow all sides to happen. Any suppression, be it from outside or the inside, will actually lead to depression. Thank you for that comment, Fosca. N also left a very lengthy uh, examination uh, talking about his own uh, examination of the so-called duality of Narcissus and Goldmund and um, the Hegelian dialectic contained in there. We had a comment from Grenin P123 who said that I read this book back when I was in college and in thinking about it now, I sense that our social context has changed very dramatically. Perhaps it's just me, but it seems that the duality and angst I felt when reading this book years ago has somewhat dissipated. The questions we ask are different now. Very interesting. Uh, Captain J-Rab uh, left a link to Alan Watts uh, with an excerpt on this topic. And then E also has a uh, lengthy post talking about the, uh, the, the human condition in general and the spirit versus flesh, mind versus matter, reason versus desire, scientist versus artist, lab versus field, concept versus concrete, civilization versus nature, etc., in which he says uh, intelligence, passion, expression, brain, heart, hands, thought, feeling, action, words, voice, song, indeed, Narcissus Goldman or Narcissus Goldman. Narsman Goldasis, if you will, is the result of an unorthodox and hence rare partnership that is greater than the sum of its robotic and cavemanish parts. So a lot of very interesting feedback on last month's very interesting conversation. If you haven't listened to it yet, please go back into the archives and do so. But as always, let's finish today's episode of the podcast by directing you to next month's offering. Next month, we're going to be talking about the 1985 landmark film from director Terry Gilliam, Brazil. And with that, I will leave you for another month. Thank you again for joining me. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, hoping to talk to you again very soon.